following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 9, and uh, we're going to start in verse 13. Uh, We studied the first 12 verses of this psalm last week, and we were encouraged by David's conviction that we should praise God and be grateful to Him with our whole heart. This week, uh, we're going to be encouraged regarding our motives as we bring requests before the Lord and His sovereignty over all the earth and every nation for all of time. Um, I know it seems uh, maybe too coincidental, but... uh, the song we sang again today fits squarely and perfectly uh, with what it is we're going to be working on in the scriptures, and, and we are not organized enough to coordinate that, so I'm just thankful that God's Spirit does it for us. Amen? Uh, he reigns. We're going to see that today and rejoice in it together. Praise the Lord. Uh, let's read Psalm chapter 9, and we're going to start in verse 13 and go all the way to the end, okay? Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. You who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may tell all of your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk down in the pit which they have made, in the net which they hid their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment in the work of his own hands. The wicked is snared. The wicked will return to Sheol, even all the nations who forget God. For the needy will not always be forgotten nor the hope of the afflicted perish forever. Arise, O Lord, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Praise God for his word. Hallelujah. Uh, Let's jump back to where we started uh, in verses 13 and 14. It says, Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. You lift me up from the gates of death. That I may tell of your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. We see here a striking contrast between the gates of death and the gates of the daughter of Zion. Here again we see David describing a dire situation he finds himself in, and he's appealing to God's help and power as his only hope. Right? The, the gates of death, what he's letting us know is this is not some trite or trivial struggle that he's going through. He is, he is literally looking at the potential uh, of being snuffed out over what's going on. There are nations around him raging against the Lord uh, and raging against them as God's chosen people. Uh, life is on the line here. This is really serious. Um, and he's saying, God, if you don't help, I'm in serious trouble. Uh, but I, think, I like how he says, you who lift me up from the gates of death. This isn't David's first rodeo. This isn't the first time he's been in a dire struggle, called out to God, appealing to him alone, his power, his grace, his mercy, uh, and seeing the Lord be his deliverer. Uh, he says, uh, you who lift me up from the gates of death. And I think it's interesting uh, is his motive. He reveals his motive for this prayer uh, as he moves on. In verse 14, It says that I may tell of all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. David does not ask for deliverance. This is key, friends. David does not ask for deliverance to alleviate his own suffering, but so he can have all the more reason to declare the glory and the goodness of God. Do you see that? Let's look at verse 14 and see what he's saying. That I may tell of all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your 
uh, salvation. And so, first of all, the, the gates of the daughter of Zion, that may not mean a lot to us. So the daughter of Zion is Jerusalem. Zion is the mountain upon which Jerusalem is built. The daughter of Zion then always being Jerusalem. So what he's talking about here is the gates of Jerusalem. What's interesting about what he's saying is, he's saying, um, he's asking, be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. Uh, and he's, why is he asking God to do that? That I may tell of your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion, I may rejoice in your salvation. So what's interesting to understand about the gates of the daughter of Zion or the gates of Jerusalem is that this is the central hub of commerce in Jerusalem, which is already a bustling big city for that time period. And so a lot of what's going on, a lot of the in and out, a lot of the activity of the people, there's going to be a ton of people right around those gates, people coming and going, people buying and selling. And so what is he saying? He's saying, God, I want to see your grace. I want to see your deliverance so that I can stand in those gates in the busiest part of the city and I can declare to all your goodness, your faithfulness, and I can rejoice in your salvation out loud to all those people. He's asking God to deliver him, not just because he wants relief from the pain or the struggle of what's going on, but he already is looking past that to God being glorified as he rejoices openly in public in the busiest place he can think of about God's deliverance. That's a good motive for prayer. That's a good motive for making a request to God. And oftentimes our viewpoint is limited only to, God, just get me out of this struggle, right? Because we would like relief from whatever that pain point is. Uh, And I believe God is merciful and gracious and will deal with us where we're at. But we see the maturity of David here, the spiritual maturity of David, that he's not only concerned with God, hey, it'd be great if I could be lifted up from the uh, gates of death again, right? If I could escape death, if I could escape this hateful pursuit of the enemies that want to destroy me, uh, that's great, and, and I would like to get out of that trouble, but God, I'm already excited about the fact that you are the one who does that. You've proved it to me, and what I'm looking forward to is declaring how faithful and powerful and wonderful you are at the gates of the daughter of Zion. God, do this that you may be glorified. He's already concerned with God's glory in the event, not just his own uh, saving And that, uh, I believe, is is a beautiful model for us, something we should contemplate as we bring prayers to the Lord. We are told in Philippians, bring your prayers and petitions to God. Aren't you thankful that because of Christ, we, little old us, are invited to come into the presence of God and bring our prayers and petitions? We are invited to bring our needs to him. What an amazing promise. What an amazing invitation from the God of the universe. The next step that David shows us here is not just that we bring our needs but we're thinking already about, as God answers those needs, what is the ultimate best benefit that comes out of it? Is it just that we're saved from whatever dire circumstance we find ourselves in? Or is it, are we already thinking about the fact that as God is faithful, as God is faithful to do what it is he's promised to do, that we're going to have an opportunity to declare his goodness, that we're going to have a testimony to shout out to as many people as possible. That's where David's at. God, deliver me that I may glorify you. What a beautiful prayer. What a beautiful thing to say. Praise God. May we be the same way. Verses 15 and 16 says, The nations have sunk down in the pit which they have made. In the net which they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. In the work of his own hands, the wicked is snared. This is not an uncommon theme. Uh, If you've been tracking with us through uh, the, the last few Psalms, we've seen this come up a few times. David continually rejoicing in the fact that God doesn't just win a little bit. Right, that continually we see this, this idea that God 
not only wins, not only lays low those that would stand in opposition to him, but he actually uses their own devices against them. And he's saying here, God, you've made yourself known. Because it's not just that, you know, the off chance that we happen to win the battle or that, that the enemies, you know, didn't, didn't uh, succeed in their campaign. It's, it's, not, it's too much to be chalked up to coincidence when the exact way they were going to try to take out God's people they end up falling in that trap. They end up with the net that they spread around their own feet. And this is something that we see uh, David rejoicing in often because, again, his heart is not just, God, lay down these nations and lay down these enemies that, that hate us and want to hurt us, but God, be glorified in doing it. And so he's rejoicing in the fact that when God wins, he wins big. And he does stuff like using the very devices that those enemies would come against. He turns it on their own head. Uh, there, was, there, there was another part of the Psalms that we were going through. It said that when, when people stand against God and stand against his people, that, that God flips it and, and it lands right back on the crown of their own head. Whatever their, whatever their devious plan was, it comes back and smacks them. And that just, again, David rejoices in the fact that that points to, that, at some point, it's not coincidence. When the same thing you were trying to do to take out God's people ends up happening to you, and you see that law of sowing and reaping in effect, it just it declares that God's involved here, and he gets the glory for the victory. Uh, and it's not just in David's life that this happens. It's, it's all throughout the scriptures. One example, uh, as I was reading through this, that came to my mind um, is, is uh, the story of, of Mordecai, right? So Mordecai, this is in the book of Esther. Mordecai was Esther's uncle. Uh, Esther uh, was young. She was said to be very beautiful, and her parents um, were, were taken away or not alive. And so Mordecai took her in, her uncle, as her own. And so uh, they were taken into captivity. And underneath the rule of King Xerxes, he decided uh, he wanted to kind of have uh, his own um, uh, Miss Universe contest, and he was going to decide who his next wife was. So every eligible maiden was brought. Uh, Mordecai told Esther not to say that she was of Jewish descent. Uh, she was very beautiful, and, and he kind of, I think, understood intuitively she had a good chance of being selected. Just so happens she was. So she becomes a, a wife of King Xerxes. And uh, what ends up happening is, that uh, Mordecai, is a, he's a guard there uh, in the palace uh, in King Xerxes' kingdom, and there's another guy named Haman. He's a, he's a high-ranking official in that time, in that kingdom, and uh, he's got a little bit of a superiority complex. I don't know if he was a short guy or what, but he, he had little man syndrome to some degree. He was very insecure, and he really liked it when people would bow down and kind of quiver when he walked by. He really wanted respect. And so uh, Mordecai, being a man of God, wasn't going to bow and worship anybody other than the living God. And so, you know, here comes Haman. Mordecai doesn't bow. Haman gets super upset. And he decides, not only am I going to get Mordecai killed, I'm going to persecute his people as well. Mordecai gets word to Esther. Esther throws a banquet and uh, asks both Haman and Xerxes to come. And in the midst of all of that, it ends up coming out that uh, Mordecai had, had foiled a plot to kill the king earlier on. That came back up, uh, back to Xerxes' understanding and remembrance. And at the same time, all around the same thing, uh, part of Haman's plan was he was trying to come to get Xerxes to let him kill Mordecai. And he had had somebody build 75-foot-tall gallows because he wanted to hang Mordecai publicly so that everybody sees what happens when you don't respect Haman, right? So what happens is he ends up at the dinner it all comes out. Everything gets brought into light that Mordecai is actually a, a really humble guy that deserves to be recognized and lifted up, not put down. That, and furthermore, Esther brings out the fact that these are her people that Haman's trying to destroy. And so what ends up happening at the end of the whole thing is Xerxes 
hangs Haman on the gallows he built for Mordecai. It's a cool story. You should go check it out. I just gave you the Cliff Notes version, but uh, that's, that's just one example, one really, I think, direct example of the principle that David is rejoicing in, in here, that uh, when, when somebody stands up and decides to be devious against God or his people, uh, it goes bad for them, and oftentimes the very vehicle they thought they were going to use to bring destruction to someone that God loves ends up being their own destruction, and that just kind of proves that there's something more than chance involved here uh, over and over and over again as it happens, so... Praise God for that. I'm glad that uh, his sovereignty and his rule is total and not in question. Amen. Uh, We're going to take the rest together, right? So verses 17 through 20. Read these again. The wicked will return to Sheol, even all the nations who forget God. For the needy will not always be forgotten, nor the hope of the afflicted perish forever. Arise, O Lord. Do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Verse 17 says, The wicked will return to Sheol, even all the nations who forget God. This is actually a repetition. It seems like two different things are being said, but it's the wicked will return to Sheol, even all the nations who forget God. So what it's saying is here that the nations that forget God, they are the wicked ones. And so men in general, nations in particular, apparently have a tendency to forget that God is God. I think that's part of why uh, it goes on to say, Lord, put them in fear. Remind them they're, they're but mere men. And so it, it is a wicked thing to forget God. And I think it's, it's concerning because sometimes we are lulled into this sense of uh, kind of apathetic and, and lackadaisical approach to all that's going on around us because if we don't see overt opposition to God, we assume everything's okay or at least close to okay. Here, we're seeing that You don't have to be in overt opposition to God for him to be ticked. Just forgetting him, going about life as if he doesn't exist or his law doesn't matter or his commands are of no consequence, that is the very height of ignorance, pride, and wickedness, and uh, it will lead to destruction. And so we can't only not be uh, in opposition to God, but we cannot go around forgetting him or acting like what he says or what he does uh, is no concern to us. That is described here as wicked. And that's true for nations, and it's true for people. Uh, So let us not forget him. Uh, He's not forgotten us. Isn't that a beautiful truth? Praise God. Verses 18 through 20. What we see here is that we must live in the tension of being grateful for where and when God has placed us while not being confused about where our highest allegiance lies. We as citizens of God's kingdom must view all things with an eternal perspective, knowing that Acts 17 tells us that God has placed each of us in this country at this time as a part of his plan to fulfill his will in the earth. There's comfort in that because sometimes things don't look like they're going God's way. But part of what we rest in is what we sang about earlier and what we see declared over and over again in these psalms, what David rejoices in, the absolute sovereignty and power of the God of the universe. Are you comforted? Do you find peace in the total reign and rule of the God of the universe? The fact that he is king over every other king. Does that bring you peace, friend? It should. Of course, that is if you're on his side. (laughs) If you're not on his side, then it's a terrifying thing. And it should be. And you should get on his side. Praise God. Amen. 
Because he's God and he's right. We can celebrate the independence of America from Britain tomorrow without conviction so long as we understand the Declaration of Independence and the nation that was birthed from that document exists because God Almighty allowed it to be established as a part of his redemptive purposes in the earth. We can't understand the fact that this country is among many other countries, that God is king over all of them, and that he is moving things uh, and he is weaving his purposes throughout all of history, coming to the climactic end of redemption and the fulfilling of his promise to bring those who put faith in Christ into eternity with him. And so we have to not be confused about where our highest allegiance lies. There is ample evidence that we as a nation need verse 20. What does verse 20 say? Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. There's ample evidence that we as a nation need verse 20, but that doesn't mean we can retreat to a fatalistic mentality where we give up hope or act as if God is unable to work through the United States for the good of his people and the glory of his name. You understand that? There is ample evidence that we need verse 20, that we need to be reminded that we are but men, right? That we need the fear of God woven back into our conscience and pressed upon us so that we would understand his laws are for our good and we would act accordingly. There's a lot of evidence for that. However, that doesn't mean that because our surroundings uh, give us much evidence that verse 20 applies to us that we just retreat into kind of sadness and, um, and hopelessness. We have to keep this balance of understanding that God is at work even in the midst of all of that uh, condemning evidence. Verse 18 gives us the idea that the weak are exploited by the strong when nations forget God. Let me say that again. Verse 18 gives us the idea that the weak are exploited by the strong when nations forget God. And there is no doubt this symptom is present in America today. Estimates vary somewhat, but a conservative number for how many abortions have occurred in this country since 1973 is 54 million. When nations forget God, the strong exploit the weak. Most of the wealth in this country is in the possession of just a handful of elites, with the vast majority who are not in that elite chasing an idolatrous dream of attaining that wealth to no avail. When nations forget God, the strong take advantage of the weak. Much of the systems of authority that are supposed to serve and safeguard the people are corrupted to the point that they barely resemble what was originally intended. When nations forget God, the strong exploit the weak. I saw what I think was a headline from a satire site this week, but it, it actually it, it captures to some degree the situation we find ourselves in. This was the headline I saw. 13% of people prefer a devastating asteroid strike to either of the current major party candidates we have right now being elected. <laughs> I don't know if it was satire or not. It's funny either way. But I digress. Um, it is funny. But my point is that there is much to lament about the current state of affairs in the place and time we find ourselves. And we as a nation do need to be reminded that we are but men and that God is sovereign Lord over all. But we cannot focus only on these things. We must also be grateful that even though things may not be 
a perfect utopia here in America, the majority of our population does not have to spend all of their time and energy simply trying to procure adequate food and water and shelter. Some are at this level of struggle, no doubt. But the truth is that we have the collective resources as a country to address that if we were both wise and generous with them. The reality is we live in a time and place that is almost unparalleled in human history as far as resources are concerned. If you are not sure about this, consider that we spend hundreds of billions of dollars a year on entertainment. We spend this money on music, movies, sports, dining, and a whole host of other activities. People who are starving and scrambling for necessities don't spend money on entertainment. And you can see this entertainment spending in our culture as another reason for lamenting, but I want to think through the implications and see if there's not reason for gratitude. I'm not saying we shouldn't be concerned somewhat that that's the reality of how much how that much of our resources is spent. However, I think what it reveals is something that we should see as an encouragement. If we as a people are spending all that money on entertainment, what does it mean that we have a surplus of as a country? Money seems to be the obvious answer. What's the second thing? Because specifically what we're spending it on. We're spending, I think in 2000, it was over $200 billion to be entertained. What does that mean? So we've got money, obviously, in surplus, but we also have time. We also have time and surplus. And though most of us would scoff or laugh at that idea when we think about our own schedules, it's only because our perspective is skewed. If we are shelling out billions to be entertained, then we have more time than the nations of the world whose populations spend every waking moment trying to survive. We do have more time than they do. So, Part of what we can be thankful for as we celebrate the existence of this country tomorrow is that we have time to spare. And the implications for this, of this for the furthering of God's kingdom I think should be easy for us to see. Not only do we have time, but at least for now, we also have the freedom to live openly as Christ followers, to share the good news about Jesus in public. And this is definitely reason for gratitude because it is definitely not the case everywhere. Steph, could you put that up for me, please? This is Pastor Ben Amirani. He's 41 years old, and he's currently serving a combined sentence of six years in Ghazal Hazar prison for actions he took against the state. What are these actions? He pastored a group of converts in a house church and shared his faith with Muslims. I'm reading you word-for-word, an excerpted article about this pastor. Pastor Irani is married to Christine, an Armenian Christian, and has a daughter, Rebecca, who's 10, and a son, Adriel, who's 3. He became a Christian in 1992, and he's been a pastor since 2002. Pastor Irani was arrested and convicted on two separate occasions, first in December 2006 and again in April 2010. The 2006 arrest led to a conviction and suspended sentence of five years. After his arrest in 2010, the Iranian regime sentenced Pastor Irani to one year in prison for his actions against the state. Just before his release, okay, so now he's spent a year away from his small children because he was telling people about Jesus and pastoring a small flock in his house. That's what he's in jail for. So he spends a year in jail for that. And then right at the end, 
they tell him he's now going to have to serve a five-year suspended sentence from his 2006 arrest. So he thinks he's right at the cusp of being reunited with his family. Boom, here's five more years. His daughter's 10. His son is three. In six years, the son is nine. The daughter's 16. Can you imagine that? I can't. Pastor Arani has suffered severe maltreatment while serving his sentence. He's suffering from severe bleeding due to stomach ulcers and complications with his colon, which caused him to lose consciousness temporarily, uh, often. He's received death threats and sustained regular beatings from his cellmates and the prison authorities. Sources report that the regime is denying Pastor Arani potential life-saving medical treatment. Although Pastor Arani was not formally charged with apostasy, the verdict from his 2006 arrest includes text that describes the pastor as an apostate and reiterates that apostates can be killed. There's a lot that could be better in our country today, friends. But can I just say that tomorrow, I'm going to be thanking God with all of my heart that right here, right now, in the United States of America, I can gather with all of you. I can pray out loud. I can sing out loud. I can preach the gospel out loud. And I can go into public and live and preach the gospel openly. I can leave here today and some of that surplus of time that I have because of the time and place that God has placed me, I can go out in the world and I can preach the good news that even though every single one of us is imperfect, that even though every single one of us deserves the judgment of God, deserves to be separated from him, that he made a way through Christ, that he sent Jesus to come and live a perfect life I never could have. And then that same perfect lamb of God died in my place for my sins, shed his blood, purchased my redemption, and then went and rose from the grave, breaking the back of sin and death, proving that everything he said was true. I can go into the world and I can live in light of that, Openly, I can walk with joy. I can have peace. I can love people that otherwise would be deemed unlovable. And I can open my mouth and I can preach the good news of that gospel wherever and whenever I want. And I'm not going to be risk, at risk of being taken from my children for six years. I'm thankful to God for the place and time he's put me. But I'm also convicted that maybe I've wasted some of the time and place God has put me. I have, to wonder, <laughs> I have to wonder how Pastor Arani would respond um, to our complaints about our current situation. I have to wonder to some degree what he would think about the way we allocate time and resources. And guys, this is not some emotional guilt trip. I'm, I'm just taking you through uh, the journey I walk through in contemplating these things. I'm just asking us to think. We may look at our schedules and say we have no time, but really, why is that? Does it have to do with what we prioritize? Does it have to do with the way we're allocating time? We're not spending every day just trying to make sure we eat and have some clean water and shelter over our heads if there's a storm. And so what are we doing with the extra spare time that so many billions of people in the world don't have? And the question is, what should we be spending that time on, especially in light of the fact that we live in a country where without risk, for the time being, without risk, we can go out and boldly proclaim the beautiful truth about Jesus and his gospel. We can live openly about it. We can praise him in the streets, man. We can speak openly of the Savior that we love. I, 
Why, how do I ever struggle to do that? How, in contrast to Pastor Arani, who knew the risk, right? Remember, he was arrested twice. So he knew the first time he was risking being yanked from his family and from his children. But something about the truth of the gospel, something about the need to get the hope of Christ to as many people as possible compelled him past that danger. And I don't even know if most of us would reason that that's right. Some of us might be so foolish as to question whether or not he should have put his family at that risk. And, and I just don't think we can. I think we absolutely have to understand in the situation he found himself he did the right thing. You go through the scriptures over and over again. Jesus said things like, blessed are you when you're persecuted. Blessed are you when you're persecuted for my name. This brother has dealt with some real persecution. This brother uh, has been incarcerated and separated from his family for years uh, because he wouldn't stop talking about how much he loved Jesus and wanted other people to find out that there's hope in Christ. And I'm just saying to us, friends, let Let's not just stew. This is not something that the Spirit of God never brings condemnation. But if, if conviction is striking your heart, if you're thinking about your life, if you're thinking about what it looks like, if you're thinking about what you would do in this pastor's situation, and I think, I think it'd be, it's easy for us because we know the right answer. We'd like to think that if we found ourselves, if the time and place that God would have put us in, his, in the weaving of his sovereign plan would have been Iran in 2016, we'd all like to think we'd be bold for Christ there. My question is, if we struggle to do it here in a land where we're free to do so, with the biggest risk of being social rejection, <laughs> should, should we assume that we would be bold for Christ when the stakes were higher. I am thankful. I am not blind to the fact that there is much that would cause verse 20 to apply to the time and place we find ourselves, friends. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. We need that. <laughs> we need the power of God. We need the truth of God. We need the weight of the glory of God to sit upon us as a people, first as God's church in this nation, but then as a, as a nation as a whole. Uh, and part of what's going to propel that forward is, is God's people responding first. God's people standing in boldness first. God's people standing in righteousness first. God's people declaring his holiness first. God's people living in a radical, countercultural way, in, in, in radical self-sacrifice and, and selflessness instead of the kind of consumeristic just, just mindset that we are driven to day in and day out by what it is we're fed. If we will commit to live different in light of the, the incredible beauty of the way that Christ lived, I mean, what did Jesus do? Our Savior, our example, our Master, the one whom, whom we say we are disciples of, what did he do? He, he, he didn't come in and just, and just jump into uh, the, the cultural status quo of the day. He was constantly ridiculed. He was constantly seen as going against the grain. He was constantly ridiculed. He was pursued. His life was pursued, and, and they ended up eventually getting him, not knowing that that was all a part of God's plan so that we could be redeemed. If we're going to follow after Christ, friends, and, and I'm not... I want you to understand that overall, what I want you to know is when those fireworks are going off tomorrow, mostly what I'm going to be thinking about is how thankful I am that I live in a country where in this time, God has blessed me with the resources and the time and the freedom to declare his gospel openly. And, and I'm, going to, I'm going to renew my conviction to take advantage of that. 
to really be thankful for that, but also not just thankful, but to take action. And I want to follow after Jesus. I want to do what he did. I want to live boldly. And I want to, I want to be able to count the cost and know that, yes, it may cost me something, but anything that I have to give up, anything that I sacrifice, any persecution I may face, any difficulty that I may be the result of me living a life that declares the goodness and the glory of God to those around me, any cost that it has pales in comparison to the price that Jesus paid for me. Jesus already paid a much higher price than any of us could ever have to to follow after him. And so let us rejoice in that and let us know that absolutely anything that it costs us it pales in comparison to the glory that's coming. We have a promise of eternity with Jesus. And so you know what? Even though, even though the, the likelihood is low that we're going to be in Pastor Arani's situation for declaring the truth about Christ in this culture, it, 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 would, it would take some very extenuating circumstances for that to happen. There are stories here and there of that going on, but I'm not sure how accurately those are even reported. But the bottom line is, even if it came down to that, you can, you can think what you want to about this, but I, I would ask you to just submit it to God as a matter of prayer. Is Pastor Arani taking the risk of being separated from his children for, for the, the possibility of leading one or two converts there and wherever he was at in the Middle East to Christ, is, is that risk worth it? Should he have taken that gamble? I think he should. I don't see any way around it. And so what I'm saying is, no matter the cost, no matter the potential inconvenience, we need to take advantage of the place and time we find ourselves. Thank God he put us here and he put us now. And he's given us the resources and the time to be able to declare his glory and his goodness and the truth and the beauty of his gospel to as many people as possible. Let us not only be thankful for it, but let us take action in light of it. Amen? Amen. Amen. Praise God. Praise God. I'd also just like to call to your attention that uh, the fact that we find ourselves in a psalm addressing so clearly uh, nations and issues that have to do with uh, countries and their sovereignty, um, there's no way that uh, I'm slick enough to plan uh, landing right here the day before the 4th of July. And uh, I just want you to know that that's something God did, and I believe he brought us here in this moment at this time so that we could be thinking about these things. Um, and I don't want this to be it. I want you to party tomorrow, man. Light off fireworks. Don't blow your hands off. Praise God. Barbecue. Do whatever you're going to do, man. Get with family. Have a great time. I know a lot of you are going to join us down here uh, for the celebration here in Norwood and, and show the community that uh, we want to be a part and help them pull that celebration off. Um, I, I am thankful that God and his sovereignty saw fit to establish the United States of America. Uh, I'm thankful that he found a group of guys crazy enough to sign a document and send it over to uh, good old king of England and say, hey, buddy, we're done, right? Um, it took some special people, uh, but God ordained all of it. Um, but it wasn't just so that uh, the United States of America could be established. God, in letting that happen, God, in moving all of that from Paul Revere to the you know, uh, allies with Indians, everything it took for that to be pulled off and for the United States to be established, God not only saw that, but he understood the implications of us sitting here today, July 3rd, 2016, talking about the fact that we are free to declare the glory of God and the truth of his gospel into the world. God saw all of it, and he's been weaving all of it, and he's been bringing it to this point. And he knew that we would find ourselves in the second half of Psalm 9 on this day, 
all the way back in 1776 when John Hancock was signing the thing real big. Isn't that amazing to you? Doesn't that make you want to worship God that he's got all of that in focus? That he's weaving all of those things and all of those details, all of those pieces throughout human history. And he's bringing everything that he desires to happen down to a point. And at the end, what we're going to have is us and him forever. He's working toward a goal and he's allowed us to be a part of what he's doing in the earth. Are we thankful for that? Are we grateful for that? And are we going to take the, the advantages he's given us in this time, in this place right now, and use them for his glory? I pray that we do. I pray that we do. I pray that we don't get focused on all of the things we could be lamenting about. Yes, those are many. But that's not all that's going on. God's also working. Thank you, Jesus, that's true. It's the only hope I got. May we be a people whose prayers are motivated by what will exalt King Jesus more than our own preference and needs. May we be a people who trust God's power to deliver us and execute perfect justice. And may we live as citizens of God's kingdom, full of gratitude and making the most of the time and place we find ourselves for our good and his glory. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. We thank you, first of all, for access to your throne by that name. We know in and of ourselves we have nothing to bring. There's nothing in us that would cause us, God, to be given access to your perfect holy presence, but you made it possible through Christ, through him coming, humbling himself to be born of a virgin, to live a perfect life, and then die in our place for our sins. I thank you, Lord, that because of his finished work, we are counted as sons and daughters. We are given his righteousness that all of the things that would separate us from you, that those are wiped away. And we get to stand wearing his robes. We get to come boldly to your throne room as children. We get to bring prayers and petitions. God, we ask for your help that when we pray, when we realize that we have need, whether we need deliverance from trouble or we just need help with resources, God, whatever need it is we bring to you, Lord, may we not be so short-sighted as only to bring that need in light of the need itself. May we not only come to you hoping that you will use your incredible sovereign power to alleviate some issue for us, but God, may we already be thinking about your glory in the midst of it. May we already be saying to you, God, I ask that you would deliver me, or I ask that you would provide for me, or I ask that you would lead me and guide me, God. I ask that you would answer this prayer, Lord, that I may stand in the gates of the daughter of Zion and declare, Lord, that you are the joyous one bringing me my salvation, that you are the answerer of prayers, that you are the faithful one, that there's nobody like you. God, may we be as interested in being able to declare your faithfulness when you answer our prayers as we are in getting the prayers answered. We ask for your help in that, Lord, because we are constantly focused upon our need for the sake of our need, Lord. Oftentimes, our vision is short-sighted. Oftentimes, we are, we are self-focused. So we ask for the help of your Holy Spirit, that we would have an eternal perspective, that we would have a kingdom perspective, that, God, your glory would be among our first concerns, that we would not be coming to you all the time, bringing needs just only to have the needs met. But we want you to be glorified as you provide for your children. You are faithful and powerful. You are holy and wonderful. God, you are glorified when sometimes you answer no. You are glorified when sometimes you tell us to wait because whatever you're doing, whatever your answer is, God, it is always leading to our good. It is always leading to your glory. And may we rejoice in that. May we be thankful for it. God, may we be a people 
Help us, Lord Jesus, please, by your Spirit, that we would not be overcome with what we see going on around us. Lord, there's so many reasons why Psalm 920 applies today. There's so many reasons, God, that our nation needs to be sat low, needs to be under, made to understand that we are just men and women, that we are not God. There's, there's so much evidence that uh, we've forgotten you in many ways. But God, may we not focus only on that. May we see also what you've done. May we see what you've done, God. May we see that the United States of America is a part of your redemptive plan and purpose in the earth. And of all the things we could rejoice about as it pertains to this country, may that be the thing that excites us most. That you, God, are a part of what's going on in this country in this time. And that, God, you've placed us here right now and you've gifted us specifically. You've called us uh, for this time exactly and in this place. And you've commissioned us to preach and to live out your gospel openly, regardless of what it costs. I thank you, Lord, that for now we have the freedom. I thank you now, God, uh, in this place that we find ourselves, we can, we can gather openly, we can preach openly, we can turn the speakers up and praise you in song openly. Thank you, God, we don't have to hide in basements or in caves, but right now, God, we, we have the, the joyous privilege of assembling whenever we want, to pray and to, and to hear your word, to declare the glories uh, and the wonders of your goodness. And, and God, we're just thankful for that. Lord, please, sometimes, sometimes, God, we get so busy with what we perceive to be important that we actually treat this incredible privilege of gathering together as your people as some type of duty. Lord, somehow it becomes for us not a delight, but it becomes uh, something to check off of a list of, of religious behaviors we have to do. God, please drive from us that sinful tendency by your Holy Spirit. God, may we be elated every single time we get to walk in the freedom uh, that is afforded us because of the time and place you've called us to be. God, may we be uh, so mindful, Lord, in every minute of the way we're spending time and resources. You've given us an abundance of both of those things. And Lord, may we understand it's not just for us to consume the time or the resources, but you've given us what you've given us so that we could have the latitude, uh, Lord, to exert effort and time and to give away resources so that we can uh, just push forward, Lord, the truth about your kingdom, the beauty of your gospel. Lord, help us. Help us that our highest motivation, help us, Lord, that our greatest joy would be the fact that we have been drafted, that we have been brought in, commissioned as ambassadors of reconciliation, that you've called us to have the word of the truth of the gospel in our mouths and to live our lives in light of it. Thank you we can do it openly. Thank you we don't have to hide. Lord, help us to take full advantage of that. Help us to quit being distracted. Help us, Lord, to quit worshiping the very things that should be freeing us to worship you more. Oh God, we need your help. We need your help. We thank you. Thank you that tomorrow, Lord, we're going to be able to celebrate the fact that you sovereignly brought the United States of America into existence. Thank you, Lord. Tomorrow we can celebrate. We can think about the fact that you placed us here and now because you knew exactly what you were doing. And even though there's lots of reasons, Lord, that we could be concerned, let our overwhelming uh, emotion, let our overwhelming uh, thought be that you know what you're doing. May we trust that. May we rejoice in it. And may we live in light of it. Oh, God, be glorified as your people do exactly what it is you've called them to do in exactly the place and time you've called them to do it. We submit ourselves, Lord God, to whatever it is you want to do, and we're excited that you would let us be a part. We love you so much. We love you so much. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.